It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I didn't get to go into outer space yesterday, but I did get a chance to do something that I had never imagined, which was to be the anchor for a space launch, uh, at least briefly. Uh, This happened during Media Buzz, and, uh, you know, it really is a great challenge to any journalist to be thrust into a situation where it's breaking news. And usually the breaking news consists of uh, press conferences or uh, a situation with a hurricane or something like that. I mean, a few years ago on my show, uh, the announcement of Nancy Reagan's death came about 20 minutes in. But I had a panel there to talk about it, and I knew a lot uh, since I had lived through the Reagan administration. But Richard Branson's stunning and successful uh, Virgin Galactic flight yesterday was really something. It was really exciting. And, and as I was on the air, uh, and I had help from uh, uh, Fox News correspondent Jeff Paul, who was at the site and knew a lot more than I did about the details of this uh, historic flight, and then an aerospace engineer, uh, which my team arranged to uh, call in and, and provide some perspective on the whole thing. I, I couldn't help but flash back to you know all the times that I watched um, the launches of the 60s, first the Mercury program, and then the Apollo program, and then the landing on the moon in 1969. Uh, Walter Cronkite was often the anchor. He loved space, big space buff. Uh, now, so I'm not, I'm not an expert on any of this. I was told maybe an hour before the show, because originally this was all going to take place earlier in the morning, but then it got delayed uh, by weather, and so now it's unfolding during my hour. I was told we would do about 10 minutes uh, to chronicle the landing of the spacecraft. Uh, ended up being half an hour, and it was the right decision. You know, we lost some segments, but right decision to stick with it because it was just, it was impossible not to get caught up in the excitement. I mean, for one thing, you had, you know, people are touting this as the new era of space tourism, and I suppose it could be that. Uh, I also felt it was my job to uh, inject a little skepticism into that. Well, is it a new era for people who have lots and lots and lots of money? In the case of Virgin Galactic, um, I guess they've sold about 60 uh, tickets for future flights, if all these future flights take place, for a couple hundred thousand apiece. But in terms of Branson's competitor, Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin rocket company, and he's going to go into space eight days from now, uh, he has sold a ticket to somebody for $28 million, which is a nice thrill ride since, I mean, the whole thing with Branson lasted about an hour and a half. And they were, Branson and his uh, crew, all the people, uh, he had four uh, total who work for Virgin Galactic and two pilots. And that's one difference, as we talked about on the air, whereas this was a manned flight with two pilots in charge, Bezos's uh, launch uh, coming from Texas, the uh, Branson one was in, in uh, New Mexico, uh, will be autom- automated. The, all the piloting will be done automatically. Uh, I don't know exactly what happens if there's a problem and somebody has to take over. In any event, you know, this was so many things. It was um, private companies um, coming into their own after a gener- couple of generations where only government uh, dealt with space travel, where it was always NASA, where you had, you know, this all began with JFK and we will put a man on the moon in this decade. And as I mentioned on the air, it grew out of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War, what was then called the space race. Uh, the Soviets had launched, launched the Sputnik satellite 
1957. Uh, that really rocked America because, you know, it was not only a question of prestige, who could get into space first, who could land a man on the moon first. Uh, it was also a question of the, tech, the technology required to do this and how much that would help uh, here at home. So out of that competition came a different kind of competition, Branson versus Bezos. And I got to say, you know, somebody who's always viewed Richard Branson as kind of a showman. I mean, you know, he's been, had an amazing business career. He's also had some failures during that career. I mean, this is a guy who launched Virgin Records back in the day, uh, which had, let me see here, which had such uh, recording artists as the Sex Pistols, and Peter Gabriel, then he started his airline, Virgin Atlantic, and a whole bunch of other things. And just personally, he's gone up in hot air balloons, he's done bungee jumping, he's injured himself, he's become bloodied, you know, he's a guy, uh, he's a British guy, loves to take risks. And he, you know, he made a point after the flight, when you could just see he was sort of giddy with excitement, um, to say that, oh, it wasn't a competition and he wished Bezos well. And Bezos had posted a message to his credit saying he wished Branson well and he wants to join the club. But make no mistake, these are two billionaires with huge egos and both of them wanted to be first. And Branson won that particular space race. Um, and, and so I just think that it is a moment in history. Uh, also, the way in which this was kind of produced as a TV show. I mean, back during the Mercury and the Apollo programs, I mean, it was considered great if you could get some grainy black and white footage of the astronauts in the capsule or beginning, I believe, in 1965, uh, the spacewalks, at least a couple of which had to be done to repair uh, the spacecraft in flight. But now, you know... Um, Branson a couple of times came on camera, full color, pretty good picture, speaking to the people of the world uh, from out in space. But he designed this as a TV show, not only with his own role, and of course he had a press conference afterwards, and this morning he was exclusively on the Today Show with his family, and they talked about, you know, how they were confident he would come back. But you look, a, there is some risk involved. You are putting your body where your mouth is. You're putting your, you're risking your life to some extent um, in a way that you don't have to do if you have $6 billion. So the webcast of this, as put on by Virgin, uh, had Stephen Colbert introducing segments. Uh, there was an R&B singer. I mean, it just was all, you know, very 21st century, let's go viral and all of that. I mean, the fascinating thing to me as, as I, you know, narrated it, and when the landing came, you know, I'd watched enough of these things to know it was time to shut up. So I just let it breathe. People could see um, the plane coming in for a very smooth landing, as I later said on the air. I've had, you know, domestic flights with much bumpier uh, episodes hitting the tarmac than this thing. Um, but it, it wasn't a classic, you know, as we're used to seeing from so many years from NASA, um, Titanic rocket launch at the beginning. It was a plane taken off with another plane attached. And then when it got to about 45,000 feet, the smaller plane 
separated and was sort of launched and then fired its rockets, was able to get to what, what scientists are calling the edge of outer space. I don't know if it's a technical term or not. Uh, it's suborbital. They weren't high enough, and Bezos will also not be high enough to actually orbit the Earth, but high enough that you can look out on the Earth and see what, what, what Branson described as just the magnificent tableau of seeing our planet uh, and its place in the cosmos. So it was just impossible uh, not to get caught up in the excitement of the moment. Uh, at a news conference afterwards, Branson said, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth because I feel I'm still in space. You, they, they had, I guess, a few minutes of weightlessness, you know, which you could get in a simulator here on Earth. Anyway, um, it was a spectacular success. There's no other way to put it. Uh, and hats off to Richard Branson for what he was able to pull off. Uh, and, you know, we'll see how Bezos does. And, you know, I guess the question I would raise is, you know, first you had the U.S. and the Soviets competing, but then you had cooperation with the International Space Station. China now wants to become a player in space. Um, but is this just going to be uh, something for relatively affluent people to buy tickets on? You know, essentially, it's a thrill ride, right? You get to do something that would have been unimaginable. I mean, I, I hearken back and think about this. You know, it's only, I guess, less than 120 years ago since the Wright brothers, you know, launched that rickety plane for a short flight and look at the industry and look at the way it shrunk the world and look at the way, you know, uh, it changed international commerce, it changed everything. Uh, so does this new era with private capitalism driving the proverbial train or spacecraft, as the case may be, uh, will this lead to new research? Will this lead to, you know, uh, people actually be able to do more than just visit other planets? I mean, I don't know. I, the aerospace engineer I talked to said, I said, if I asked you five years ago, what were the chances of this happening? What would you say? He said, I would have said 50-50. So it's tremendous accomplishment, uh, not just for Branson or Bezos, but all the people who worked there, all the scientists, all the engineers, um, to do this uh, and to pull off this. And again, I was just honored to be able to anchor that uh, yesterday morning in real time, not knowing what was going to happen or if something went wrong. And if something had gone wrong, obviously we'd be having a very different conversation. So space is back. Uh, there's still going to be people who say, you know, why don't, and I've read this, I've read this, why don't Bezos and Branson spend more of their money fighting COVID and other problems here on Earth? This, was, this came up in the original debates of NASA in the 60s too. Why is the government using taxpayer dollars, and it comes up again now, um, to send an unmanned rover to Mars, spectacular pictures, and it adds to the sum of human knowledge, you know, when we have so many needs here, climate change and all that. And the fact is we, we can do both. Uh, and the fact is, you know, one of the great things about being alive today is the imagination, the vision of people like those uh, from the political leaders and the, the people at NASA and the astronauts who took those risks in the early days to now the entrepreneurs at these uh, companies. Um, they wanted to explore. They wanted to go further. I mean, Jeff Bezos could have just sold books. Instead, he created this online commerce giant that has absolutely changed the world. Um, Branson is 70 years old. He did not need to do this, and he looked like he was having the time of his life. Hey, a couple of sports notes. I spent a lot of time yesterday watching uh, Novak Djokovic uh, win Wimbledon against a 25-year-old upstart uh, named 
Matteo Berrettini, who has a tremendously powerful serve and forehand, and Djokovic, you know, who is far, far, far more experienced, lost the first set, but battled back, battled back, battled back to win the next three sets, his 20th Grand Slam. Uh, and, and the crowd was against them the whole time. I mean, part of it's rooting for the underdog, part of it's the people just don't like Djokovic. I don't know why. He fed off that. He, he, was, he, almost, he didn't quite flip off the crowd, but you could see through the gestures that he wanted to turn the crowd's rooting for his opponent into a way to motivate himself. And England, what a heartbreaker. The, the, the British team getting into the uh, soccer finals for the first time in, what, half a century getting into the final game against Italy. It was up one nothing. It ended up being a tie, and then came the tiebreaker. <laughs> and you can't get closer than this, losing 3-2 to two in the tiebreaker. But, you know, tremendous season for England. All right, I want to talk about COVID because there's this extraordinary situation now where Pfizer came out on Friday and said, hey, you know what? We think it's a great idea to have a booster shot. Yes, if you've already gotten our two shots, you're protected uh, from COVID-19. But since time has gone on and since we have these new variants, particularly the Delta variant, which seems not only serious, but seems much more transmissible, uh, we think you should get this shot. And completely blindsided the government. And the Biden administration came out, the CDC and the FDA, and said, no way, you don't need this. This is not necessary at this time. So on the one hand, you have this private company, uh, and, and Pfizer is going to brief top federal health officials today about what it sees as the need for a vaccine booster shot after this sort of public spat. And it's hard for journalists to know how to cover this. You know, do you defer to the wisdom of the CDC, which has made a lot of mistakes during this pandemic, which hung on way too long to the notion that even if you were vaccinated, you should wear a mask outside? I mean, that was ludicrous. A lot of people didn't listen to it. But at the same time, you know, you still have a stalled vaccination program for people who haven't gotten their first shot, let alone their second shot, unless you're getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And that is... um, getting to be an absolutely serious dilemma. About 67% of the adult population, over 18, I mean, I'm not saying it's not important for the 12 to 18-year-olds to get this as well, um, but about 67%, Biden's goal had been 70%. The, the difference among states is really stunning, and there are a number of states in the upper Midwest and in the South where uh, those vaccination rates are way low. I really have a hard time understanding this. Yes, I know it's an individual decision, and I know people are, you know, grandstanding about how can they send people door to door? They're going to force you to get the shot. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. They're trying to persuade people to get these life-saving vaccinations, not only to help them, but to help people around them to stop the transmission of, of COVID and the variants. Their friends, their colleagues, um, the resistance, you know, people have to make up their own minds. You know, it does have, uh, it does knock you out for a couple of days in most instances. There have been instances of side effects. You've got to make your own judgment. But the, the statistic that I think actually clinches this is the fact that 99.5 or 0.8% of those who are still dying from this deadly virus are unvaccinated. If you get this vaccine, the odds are just infinitesimal that you may get the virus, but you won't be seriously sick or hospitalized, except in a very rare few cases, let alone face the prospect of dying. So Pfizer and its partner, uh, BioNTech, 
of Germany uh, going to seek uh, approval for this booster shot within weeks. So the government can continue to say, well, this is not needed, not grant the approval. I, I just, you know, it's hard for people to know what to think. If you got the vaccine, um, do you now need the booster shot? I mean, you know, when it comes to, you know, measles or chicken pox or flu, you know, we're used to getting multiple shots, so maybe that will all settle down. Anthony Fauci was on a couple of Sunday shows yesterday on CNN. He said it was just horrifying to him uh, that people were either bad-mouthing the vaccines or, you know, continuing to resist getting them. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. In what ordinarily would have been a huge event, uh, CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, held a conference yesterday. It's actually its second conference of the year. This one was in Dallas. Usually it's in the Washington area, but that has changed because of COVID and other things. And uh, yesterday afternoon, the keynote speaker won Donald J. Trump. And Trump spent a lot of time, and no surprise here, um, talking about the stolen election and audits and all of that. And he continues to do this. Um, he's really ramped it up. There's really no day, uh, virtually, when I don't get emails either from the Office of 45, as it's called, or from Keep America Great, Make America Great Again uh, news, with you know information about what's going on in Arizona and so forth, and you know and there was Trump talking again about widespread voter fraud, and he knows he won the election, and you know all I can tell you as a journalist is the Justice Department didn't find widespread fraud, all these lawsuits didn't prove widespread fraud. There are a lot of people I know who believe the former president there was widespread fraud, but the evidence has not emerged. And uh, Fox News ran a chiron at one point, you know, the little on-screen banner. Uh, while Trump was talking about voting machines, saying, you know, the, vo the voting machines companies like Dominion, which have filed lawsuits, uh, have denied this. Uh, and that, you know, President Biden was legitimately elected. But one thing that caught my eye in the Trump speech, uh, you know, there's a straw poll always. It's just representative of what people at this conference think. And Trump won it easily. Ron DeSantis coming in. You can either say second or first among the non-Trump candidates. And Trump made a joke. He says, you know, if, if uh, he didn't know the results of the poll at the time. Well, you know, if, if it has me doing really well, then it's 100% accurate. And if not, I'll say it's fake. So that's our headlines. You know, Trump only accepts polls he likes. Okay. But at, at CPAC, Trump, you know, who's got Mar-a-Lago, who's got this incredible apartment in Trump Tower, who's got the golf courses, Bedminster, uh, you know, properties around the world, says, Joe Biden has all these houses. He's always been like a senator or a congressman, right? Well, just a senator and vice president. For many years, I didn't know you made that kind of money that you have mansions. So the reality is that Biden owns two houses. He's got his main house in Wilmington, Delaware, which he has owned for decades, which is worth almost $3 million, but I'm sure it was not worth that when he bought it. And a few years ago, when he finally uh, was out of government after he was vice president and started making some money in terms of speeches. Uh, he bought a vacation home in Rehoboth Beach where lots and lots of middle-class people go, particularly from this Washington area. That's estimated to be worth almost $2 million. So he's done pretty well, but I mean, the, the implication that somehow he made, well, you know, he got into Hunter Biden and the laptop was Hunter Biden giving his dad money and all of that. Uh, but I just find it interesting that Donald Trump, who owns this, you know, fabulous I went and interviewed him there once. That's the only reason I've seen Mar-a-Lago, just this fabulous seaside estate 
in Florida is talking about Joe Biden's houses. Um, Matthew Cottenetti uh, has an essay in National Review uh, that I find interesting, so I will talk about it. Uh, apparently, he went on vacation. I did too for a few days last week. And he said it took that, you know, because he lives in Washington, to realize how boring D.C. has become. He came back from California and realized I hadn't missed anything. No presidential scandal, no legislative log rolling, no surprise vacancies on the Supreme Court. And he says, look, every summer Washington slows down, but 2021 is different. And I agree with this. I don't agree with the next thing. D.C.'s irrelevance is neither seasonal nor exceptional. It's the norm. It hasn't been the most dramatic six months, and that's because that's the way President Biden has chosen to govern. Now, Continenti goes on to say, you know, since Bill Clinton's impeachment, Washington, D.C. has been the site of these momentous events, whether it was the 2000 election, the war on terrorism, 9-11, the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, uh, the financial crisis, 2008, Obama's election, Obamacare, the rise of the Tea Party, um, Arab Spring, the government shutdown in 2013, and there were other ones after that. All that testified to the centrality of Washington. Well, the show is over, he says, and the thrill is gone. It used to be that the federal city and its chief executive drove the national conversation. But Biden, he says, purposely limits his exposure to remain as uncontroversial as possible. Boring news cycle deals blow to partisan media, read the headline on Axios a few days ago. Ron, it, it was talked about traffic being down for uh, more partisan sites, I guess. Uh, Ron Klain, the chief of staff, tweeted out, sorry, not sorry. So, uh, what Continenti says is that uh, we have a 78-year-old chief executive who doesn't do much on social media, rarely gives one-on-one interviews, limits himself to about one public event a day, calls on pre-selected reporters at press conferences, often refers to notes, and returns home to Delaware most weekends. Uh, as a result, he says, you know, this is a conservative writing about this president. Joe Biden's spending plans may be gargantuan and foolish. His decisions on the border and on Afghanistan may be impetuous and disastrous. His offhand remarks may be puzzling and odd, but no one gets worked up about him personally. And uh, it says that according to polls, far greater numbers of voters surveyed thought that Barack Obama was very liberal, that say the same of Biden, although Biden's agenda is far more liberal than, than anything Obama might have dreamed of. Um, and also you have the tight margins of Congress, so not much is getting done. Uh, so I, I will agree with that. Uh, it's getting more back to normal. The question is, what is normal? Is normal what we went through the four years of the exciting, melodramatic president of Donald Trump? Or is normal, you know, Washington as a sleepy summertime venue where, you know, Congress meets and debates and it's almost like more action takes place now in the media especially on cable news. And actually, I mean, we debate all this stuff, July 4th, the flag, patriotism, critical race theory, infrastructure. But when it comes to the real world within this Beltway arena, you know, it's just this federal government wasn't um, built to accomplish very much. You have a lot of checks and balances. And when you have a president who is deliberately and consciously low-key, uh, who remains over 50% popularity like Joe Biden, uh, that means he has some political capital to spend, but it also means that we don't wake up every day saying, oh, what did Biden say today? What's Biden doing? Did you see Biden's tweet? That's how he campaigned. He was going to be the return to normalcy after the 
depending on your point of view, excitement or chaos of the Trump presidency. So now I want to close with a piece by Andrew Sullivan, who uh, is a British conservative. I've known him for many, many years since he was the editor of The New Republic. Um, and then when um, he was a fierce critic of, of George W. Bush, and then he kind of liked Obama and became more moderate in his outlook. He's, I don't think he's completely abandoned some of his conservative principles, but certainly he hated, despised Trump. Uh, and now many people think he's not liberal enough. So he has an essay on Substack that I want to read because Sullivan, whatever you think of him, is just a brilliant thinker and writer. And he leads off with this. What happened to you? That's a question he says I get a lot on Twitter. When did you become so far right? Well, he started out as a conservative. A lot of people don't remember that. Why have you become a white supremacist, transphobic, misogynistic, eugenicist? Or, see, I told you who he really was. Just take the hood off, Sully. It's trolling mainly, he said. It's a weapon against the elite. Um, the real question, Sullivan says, is what happened to you addressing his readers, addressing the people who follow him? He talks about the critical race theory debate just being the latest squall and a tempest that's been brewing for years. And yes, he says some of the liberal critiques of Fox News are well taken. He basically says critical race theory is a real issue, but it's not the biggest issue. And he says, take a big step back. Look what's happened to our discourse since around 2015, which of course would be the year that Trump came down the escalator. Can you not see that Republicans may be acting, but they are also reacting, reacting against something that is right in front of our noses? What is it? He says, it's the sudden, rapid, stunning shift in the belief system of the American elites. It has sent the whole society into a profound cultural dislocation. It's an ongoing moral panic against the specter of white supremacy, which is now, Andrew says, bizarrely regarded as an accurate description of the largest, freest, most successful multiracial democracy in human history. I talked about this a little bit on Media Buzz yesterday. Uh, the segments are online about the debate about patriotism. But look, racism is still a problem. I don't deny that for a second. But Kamala Harris is vice president. Barack Obama was elected twice. Congress just passed the Juneteenth holiday. And, you know, the legacy of slavery is a stain on American history, but it, the whites today, 150 years after the Civil War, don't need to be taught that everything's their fault, uh, despite the fact that there does remain discrimination in our society. Everybody knows that. Sullivan, the elites increasingly sequestered within one political party, the Dems, and one media monoculture, the left, educated by colleges and private schools that have become hermetically sealed against any non-left dissent, this is starting to sting a little bit, have had a social justice reckoning these past few years. They have been ideologically transformed with countless cascading consequences. So, the media hub of the social justice movement is now the New York Times and all mainstream journalism in the opinion of Andrew Sullivan. And its essential point is that liberalism is no longer enough. This is, I'm going to want to talk about this on future podcasts because there's a lot to dig into here. That just being liberal, just supporting, say, government programs to help the poor, maybe you know, more help for people with health care, combating climate change, um, anti-poverty programs, that's no longer enough. There's now a new ideology 
in which uh, Sullivan says, there's no escape from this. There's no refuge from the ongoing nightmare of oppression and violence. You are either fighting this and on the right side of history, or you are against it and abetting evil. There is no neutrality, no space for skepticism, no room for debate, no space even for staying silent. Silence equals complicity, right? And that tells you about the will to power behind it. Liberalism leaves you alone. This successor ideology, he says, will never let go of you. Liberalism is concerned only with your actions. You know, what do you actually do when it comes to, you know, you name it, voting rights, poverty, health care, education. This new ideology is concerned with your mind, your psyche, and the deepest recesses of your soul. Liberalism will let you do your job and let you keep your politics private. What happened to me? You know what I want to know? What on earth has happened to you? I have exactly the same principles and support most of the same policies, says Sullivan, I did under Barack Obama. In fact, I've moved left on economic and foreign policy since then. It's the Democrats who have taken a sudden, giant swerve away from their recent past. He goes on to say Obama was kind of a straddler. You certainly didn't deny the disparities in the African-American community. But he didn't try to argue that this was um, a white supremacist society. So just to close here, Andrew Sullivan, quoting Obama, says African Americans have to take more responsibility for their own lives. Yes, there's discrimination. Yes, there's a history of slavery. Yes, there was Jim Crow and all that. But we have to demand, this is Obama speaking, we have to demand more from our fathers, spending more time with our children, reading to them, teaching them about the challenges they may face. Here's Sullivan. To say this today would evoke instant accusations of being a white supremacist and racist. That's how far the left has moved. Obama as an enabler of white supremacy. You keep asking, what happened to me? I remain an Obamacon, same as i always been. What, in contrast, has happened to you? Now, you may disagree with a whole lot of what I just read. You may disagree with Andrew Sullivan. You may think he's not liberal enough. You may think he's become this crazy right-winger. Um, but the things that he's raising here are really worthy of public debate and public discussion. Because, you know, I'm seeing a liberal movement that over the years fought for civil rights and fought for universal health care and so forth, that now wants to shut down debate. You know, the, all the, the arguments in the newsrooms, like when the New York Times editorial page editor got fired, uh, is about, well, you can't publish this because it's not woke or it's too dangerous. We can't have that idea out there. When you have conservative speakers who were canceled because of camp campus protests, they can't even come and speak and have a debate. That's the part of where liberalism is today that worries me as a journalist who believes in free speech. Um, didn't mean to get up on the high horse, but I do think, there, you know, this. sometimes you read a piece that just kind of crystallizes what you've been thinking about, what you've been worrying about. I think this is that piece. And, and it's kind of telling that Andrew Sullivan writes this on Substack because he got booted out of New York Magazine for not being liberal enough, even though he was a big supporter of Barack Obama. Well, I'm going to come back down to earth after having my uh, little episode yesterday anchoring the uh, landing of the Virgin galactic spacecraft i want to thank everybody for listening i really do appreciate it hope you find the podcast valuable you can get it at apple itunes and other places have a great day see you all tomorrow with more buzz meter 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. In these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.